I'm not sure what circles you move in, but for me, demon possession isn't something that we talk about very often these days. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting to think about what it, the idea of demon possession really is, because it sounds a bit like there's these external things that have entered into a person and is tormenting the person. It's interesting in Mark's account, as uh, Paul mentioned, this, this story uh, happens in Matthew and Mark as well, and Mark's account, I'm not sure if it's in Matthew that this is mentioned, but it says the man gashes himself against the stones. And uh, René Girard, one of my favourite thinkers, points out that it's almost like the man has a crowd of people accusing him for a stoning but the crowd has been internalised, so their voices are now inside his head, and he is stoning himself by gashing himself against the rock. So there's these accusations and torment that are driving him. Now, we probably don't see things quite like that these days. Maybe we've become more refined in our self-harming life choices, uh, yet then we we can, don't have to look far to find people that are being driven in unhealthy ways for reasons that they barely understand, for outcomes that actually don't make sense. Um, and while... Uh, sorry, I just lost my place. While they tell themselves and others that everything might be all right for them, there often is a great deal of torment going on in the lives of people that we know around us. So let's think about this demon-possessed man. Demons are about that they're spiritual things that accuse and torment somebody. And the experience of a sense of being accused and tormented is a very common human experience. Uh, some people manage to get through life without battling with those sorts of vague uh, guilt and that kind of thing, but most of us find there are passages of our life where we wrestle with these sorts of things. Whether it's a generalised sense of guilt about the privilege we enjoy as Australians or the torment of how we've behaved in a certain situation or with a certain person, um, if we're open to feeling things, one of the feelings that we often become aware of is that all is not right with the world, is it, Seb? All is not right with the world. And we suspect that maybe we bear some responsibility for that not-rightness. And that that can become a generalised sort of thing. For some people, that can become a very acute thing. It begins to shape their decision-making and the behaviour they uh, have when they're in relationship with other people. Uh, some people even lose their capacity to function within the normal range of socially acceptable behaviours. And this can result in things like social phobias or depression, or other expressions of mental health challenges, and I think we probably all know people that have experienced those sort of things. There will be people in this room who have or are experiencing those sorts of things. Uh, many years ago, when I started my ministry at another church in Manly, we had a small ageing congregation in the Manly church. There was about eight or nine people in the 80-year-old age range, probably, and there was another church at Lambie Heights as well that I was responsible for, and it was becoming clear that the turnaround that everybody hoped for 
in the church with my arrival, young minister as I was at the time, great hope for the future. As the, the days and the weeks and the months ticked on, it became clear that that turnaround wasn't materialising. And uh, I was running out of ideas and running out of energy and running out of courage and running out of faith. But I couldn't face that reality. It was kind of terrifying to be in that situation for me because I couldn't work out what does this mean? Does it mean that God isn't with me or what? And what does it mean for the congregation under my care if this thing doesn't turn around? And what does it mean for my family? And what does it mean for my sense of calling and my identity? And uh, all of that was a bit too much, actually. And I slipped into depression. And that was not much fun at all. Those things were overwhelming, and I couldn't see any way out of them. And I pushed them away from my consciousness and entered into the murky grey world of not feeling stuff much at all. And this then controlled what I could do and see and believe in, in all sorts of ways. Now, I'm not saying that depression is tantamount to demon possession, but the functional result does have some parallels where external things enter into us and start to control us. Even for those of us who are not aware of the things that hold and drive us, often under our carefully managed cultural appropriateness, we are working hard to keep ahead of an ever-present risk of crisis, something we fear will happen if we stop responding to the fear that it might happen. We can become possessed with all manner of fears and torments, and, the impact, and they, those things impact the way we live and interact with other people. And this is not living. Perhaps it might be surviving, it might be existence, there might be moments of luxury within it all, but it's not living. When the direction and purpose of our life is not deepening or becoming richer, it's more, uh, more likely that we are keeping our life at bay. The stuff that's going on, we're trying to keep it at a distance from us. We might be controlled by fears, whether we recognise those fears or not, and we are opting for a contrived existence in which we delude ourselves that everything is all right and under control. And over time, such an existence becomes disconnected increasingly and uh, barren as a way of living. We shun ourselves from healthy intimacy and we settle for stable patterns of disconnection. Now, I think that's common all around us a lot of the time. And I have to admit that um, I once had a fairly what I would call Walt Disney view of faith, in which uh, I kind of, you know, the, the Disney arc of the story where there's uh, something nice happening and then there's a, a terrible challenge to that and then there's the adventure of how you solve the challenge and at the end it all works out. I had that kind of Disney view of faith where um, I knew there would be dark passages but God would work it all out and everything would be happy at the end. And I love that saying where they... It's in one of the movies, you know, it'll be all right in the end. How is this all right? Well, it's obviously not the end, you know. <laughs> the way this belief functioned for me was that it effectively held me back from entering into things because I had this strategy that if I just held my breath long enough, 
it would be all right. Kind of like in the surf, where if a big wave is coming and it's about to break on your head, you go down, you hold your breath for as long as you can, and you come up and the wave's gone and it's all right. And this was kind of how I managed some of the crises that were going on for me. And it's not a bad strategy, except when you come up again and there's another big wave coming, or lots of big waves, and actually the thing's getting worse, and you can't just keep holding your breath and it's not working out the way that you thought that it should. And I came to see that I was doing a lot more avoiding of my life than I was doing living. I had unwittingly rendered myself ill-equipped for many of the challenges that I was facing in my life, and I had a theology of a God who would rescue me out of my life rather than a God who would rescue me into my life. And there was a real task in reshaping how to understand that and what to do with it and understand how Jesus, Jesus actually saves us into our reality and into our life so that we can be present to the challenges and the realities of what is going on. And so Jesus meets this demon-possessed man. And the story is very clear from the get-go. The demons recognise Jesus' authority. There's no question about that. They knew that they could not overpower Jesus. There was no conversation about how they would get him or anything like that. Their only hope was that he might leave them alone. But the demons could do nothing to stop Jesus if he chose to interact with them. And this is not the picture we're often given about the, the whole spiritual warfare thing. Often we get the epic struggle of good versus evil, and that's much more our struggle rather than God's struggle in a sense. We're often told that the, the, the match is almost pretty even and the outcome could go either way um, depending on who wins the day. But the biblical narrative is uncompromising. God always trumps those who oppose God. Not by force or intimidation or coercion. This is the power of truth that cannot be bent out of shape by deception. This is the power of presence that denial cannot pretend away. This is the power of love that finds meaningful connection with people. One of the things about the Anzac Day service that touches me each year is when the soldiers march up as a catafalque party and they take their positions and stand and then go stand at attention, go to ease and all this kind of thing. And there's a commander who commands those soldiers and they snap to it and it's sharp and crisp and kind of impressive. And in the military context, the soldiers get the command and they don't go, do you think we should do that, boys? How are you feeling? Stand to attention? Yeah, right. Okay, we'll stand. None of that. When the command comes, they act. And it's instinctual, and that's the framework that they're in. And the commander has all authority. There's no question about it. And this is the kind of idea, I think, that we get with Jesus and the demons. There's, there's no conversation to be entered into. The authority lines are clear. In the spiritual realm, Jesus has the authority of the commander. There's no space to challenge it. The, the demoniac knows this. The demons in the demoniac know this. The demons plead for mercy, but they have no power to secure it. And this is because grace always trumps accusation. Christ's authority over the demons 
is not due to his military might or force. We've spoken about this in the past. Jesus has an utterly other kind of power in the spiritual world. The dynamics of the kingdom are stronger than the ways of the world because grace always trumps accusation. Accusation is designed to separate the accused from the accuser. It's an attempt to tilt the power in favour of the accuser over the accused. It channels feelings of fear and resentment and often hatred and all sorts of things. It takes an unpleasant reaction and attaches it to somebody else who is then rejected in the attempt to restore a sense of well-being. Grace, on the other hand, seeks to bridge the divide. It does not want to put anything over anybody else. It wants to establish a firm foundation on which all might stand together. Grace channels love and forgiveness. It takes unpleasant things and doesn't pretend that they're not there, but deals with them openly. Finding the best way to integrate everyone who wants to participate. Grace is truth in action. Grace is stronger than accusation because it offers a wholesome hope built on the awareness that Christ has already been rejected on account of all of us and that none of us stand on any ground that is higher than anyone else. We all stand on the same grace ground. And that's an incredible thing. It's an incredibly unifying and... um, vulnerable thing in a way. It means that we can all be together and not separate from each other. The other aspect, of course, is that peace always triumphs over torment. Most people will tell you they prefer peace over torment. I think that would be a fairly easy sell. Although in reality, sometimes peace can prove uh, somewhat intimidating because it allows us to see clearly what's going on And sometimes we don't want to see clearly what's going on and we prefer not to have it clear. So torment can kind of, in a sick way, become preferable. I was talking with Jack earlier about the yellow vests in France and he was saying the yellow vest people, they have a a good cause, but there's a bunch of rat bags that follow them around and create trouble. And they don't want peace. They want upheaval so they can do their rat baggery kind of thing. Peace can be a bit intimidating because it clarifies the way things are. But either way, whether you want peace or torment, torment is not sustainable. We've got one on the loose. (laughs) I can't compete with that cuteness. (laughs) You think? Hey there. I'm just doing a sermon and um, this is my moment. (laughs) No, he's too good. Okay, try and pretend he's not there. Uh -uh. So, whether you prefer peace or you prefer torment, the reality is, the reality is torment is not sustainable. It's not a sustainable way to exist. It's exhausting. It takes enormous amounts of energy just to simply cope with We do not live when we are in torment. However, peace, on the other hand, once we come to terms with the realities that it it brings to us, is something that actually sustains us. 
we can live in peace. Peace always trumps torment. And that's why Jesus' authority is unquestionable, unchallengeable. But it is intimidating and a little bit unsettling for the people because there's a shift in power that is taking place. And this is the sticking point because whenever there's a shift in power, there's a sense of upheaval and that can be challenging for people. We see this in the history of politics, for example. When, whenever there's re regime change, uh, often there's war and bloodshed and we've come to terms with the idea of democracy, which is a much less uh, violent and bloodshed way of transitioning power. But most other alternatives for most of the rest of history, when there's been a power change, it's violent and dangerous. But it's not just in politics. What about what's happened with the World Wide Web coming in and shifting the powers of all sorts of things, whether it's the news media or uh, retail or hailing a cab or an Uber or Airbnb versus a hotel. There's all sorts of disruption and upheaval and power shift that's taking place and we don't know how it's all going to shake out and who's going to end up better off or worse off. And that's unsettling for us. That's a difficult thing for us to cope with. And generally speaking, we do know there will be winners and there will be losers. In this story, the locals who live nearby see what happens. They see, or some of them see and some of them hear, that the demons go out into the herd of pigs and the pigs basically suicide. It's, such is the trajectory of demons. They're just destructive. They go into the pigs, they destroy the pigs. But imagine if you're in the neighbourhood and maybe you had shares in the pig farm. What are you going to make of that? It's like, no, that's not very good. That's not good for business, is it? And then you see this guy who, for as long as you've known, has been tormented and gashing himself against rocks, wandering around naked, and there he is sitting there clothed and having a rational conversation. Well, that's pretty freaky as well. That doesn't make sense. And then you hear the story of this guy who seems to have brought it all about, and you go, well, he must be a demon, a, a mystical, powerful, awesome, we don't know what he is, I think you better leave. That's what they say to Jesus. The guy who's been healed hardly gets a look in and, and there's no celebration over this person who was once possessed and tormented being at peace. No, no, that's just grist for the fear mill of what on earth is going on. It's not surprising. Most of us prefer the status quo, even if it's unhealthy, than the risk of upheaval for the sake of saving some poor, tormented victim. Unless, of course, the whole orientation of our life is towards setting people free and helping people find peace, then we will weather whatever shifts of power occur in the interests of this most holy of ends. If that's our life direction, then we will do what it takes to set people free and to bring them peace. Even if that means our stakes get lowered, our, our investment in the pork farm suffers or whatever it might be. And then Jesus, gentle Jesus, sees the, the faces of the people and they're 
the terror at his presence and they say, go away. And he says, right, into the boats, lads. And this man who's been delivered, set free, first time in all those years, and he wants to go with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you stay here. Just let people know what's happened. And Jesus takes off and he stays as a whisper of something. Because the most powerful testimony that could possibly be given to these people is the ongoing life of this man who's been set free, who can describe in detail what's happened for him. And even though there's not evangelism in that area immediately, in due course there will be Paul's adventures and so forth, and the disciples going out, and how much better when the gospel arrives in that area for there to be a living memory of this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, who did some remarkable stuff. That's right, he came here. We know about that guy who was demon-possessed, and that prepares the ground for the gospel. It's the whisper of something in the community. And in a funny way, I think that's what we're doing when we do our big events in the community. When we run our Anzac Day service or our Stations of the Cross where we go around or our, our um, Passover meal where neighbours come in or our live nativity out the front here, we're whispering something to the community. We're letting them know about a story that is true that they might eventually come to know as true and our whispers will help because we're letting them see the way it affects us and helping them see the impact of that. As we allow the Spirit to set us free from the things that oppress us, as we support one another living into the kingdom, the power structures of the world, the tormenting demons of the world intimidate us less and less. Grace enables us to boldly face up to any accusation. It empowers us to deal openly with issues. And peace strengthens us to face the torment in the midst of challenging times. It gives us a hope of better things to come, drawn by the future, not driven by the past. In these ways, we testify to the change that Jesus makes in our life together. We are the whisper of the kingdom that is coming. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that your kingdom is coming. It has all authority in heaven and on earth and nothing can resist it. And we thank you that we are part of it and that we can share it and welcome people in set free from fear and torment, we can give ourselves to others just as you did, to the glory of your name. Amen.